0: This inaugural Ed Link Lecture adds to the other activities we have in the Flight Simulation Group. Sir Jock, I'm, I'm sure, uh, would not want me to go through all of his CV, um, but he was commissioned in 1970. He served in various flying appointments before he was commanded uh, No. 2 Squadron, then Royal Air Force Marin. He was the Director of Air Force Plans and Programs, Air Officer Commanding No. 1 Group, and appointed the Assistant Chief of the Air Staff. He took up the appointment of Deputy Commander-in-Chief Strike Command in 2000. He was appointed a Knight of the Commander of the Bath in the New Year's Honours List 2002 and took up the post of Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff in that year. He became Chief of the Air Staff in August 2003 and was appointed a Grand Commander of the Bath in the Queen's Birthday Honours List of 2005. And he became Chief of the Defence Staff in April 2006. He lists his hobbies as enjoying golf, music, theatre and history, though how he finds the time uh, for those, I I do not know. But (laughs) uh, we welcome you here, Sir Jock, and welcome to the podium. Thank you.
1: Well, President-elect Chairman, thank you very much indeed, and good evening, everybody. It's uh, an enormous pleasure for me to be back here at the uh, Royal Aeronautical Society, and of course a particular privilege to be asked to give the inaugural Edwin A. Link lecture. Not least, because Link is a name that has great personal meaning for me, as it has for the the President-elect and I suspect for so many of us here this evening. It takes me back nearly 40 years to Cranwell and uh, to the hours that I spent in what was then still called the Link Trainer and the blue box that i remember too had a had that single pilot cockpit and the basic generic instrument display uh together with the appropriate uh, instrument uh, navigation features and uh, the pilot's flight path was yes traced out on the old glass map table which uh, could be used by the instructor for debriefing uh, absolutely abysmal performance i mean it it was for me though the beginning of a of a personal association with simulation that led to places I couldn't even have begun to imagine at the end of the 1960s. And I wonder, sometimes I wonder if Ed Link ever imagined where his particular endeavors might lead. In some ways, it seems perhaps unlikely. He was, after all, a very practical man, the archetypal backyard inventor. And yet, and yet it seems to me that deep inside there must have been some impulse, some, some sense of a new paradigm for flying training. Ed Link grew up in the coin-operated piano business, where his father, Edwin A. Link Sr., worked. And in 1927, at the age of 23, having been around the factory for many of his formative years, he actually started work for his father, in the Link Piano and Organ Factory in Binghamton, New York. He built pianos and tuned organs, a job that required a very thorough knowledge of the pumps, the valves, and the bellows on which they depended. But Ed's consuming passion became, of course, aviation. He wanted to be a pilot, and he invested all his spare time and money in learning to fly, but alas... The lessons proved too expensive, and he seemed stuck. But undeterred, he set about devising um, a way of providing the basic instruction on the ground. He spent a lot of time in the Friends aircraft, uh, just taxiing around at Endicott and Cortland airfields in New York State. He realized that he could learn a great deal just by sitting in the right environment and getting used to the controls and to the instruments, to the navigation aids and to the radio. And looking at his early tireless work to develop a flight simulator, I'm struck by two things. The first is the external pressure, mainly financial, that drove his efforts. Perhaps necessity really is the mother of invention. But the second is his innovative approach to the problem. Now, you might think I'm making too much of all of this. I mean, after all, the idea of ground-based flying instruction seems obvious to us. Simulators, part-task trainers, computer-assisted learning, all seem such an integral part of our lives that it's hard to imagine a time when it wasn't so. Or, even more, a time when people could not conceive of it being so. But you only have to look at Link's early attempts to get his blue box accepted for flying training to realize that no one else could see any value in it. Most of his first sales were to amusement parks and it was only in 1934 after the Army Air Corps had suffered a series of tragic accidents while flying the air mail that they bought six link trainers. Two and a half years ago in in this very hall in the Sir Sidney Cam lecture I quoted Jacob Bronowski who said that in every age there is a turning point, a new way of seeing and asserting the coherence of the world. Uh, But in retrospect, what commands our attention as much are the continuities, the, the thoughts that run or recur from one civilization to another. Splitting and fusing the atom... Both derive conceptually from a discovery made in prehistory, that stone and all matter has a structure along which it can be split and put together in new arrangements. And as I said then, this strikes me as a key insight. Progress is not just a matter of discarding all that we thought we understood about things in favor of a wholly new universe. It's about seeing things in a different way. As Bronowski says, of seeing and asserting the coherence of the world. And for me, that applies across the spectrum of progress, from the great scientific advances to the developments that shape our understanding and our application of technology in order to meet the challenges of the world. And I place Edwin Link firmly in this tradition. and My evidence is the places to which his key insight has led us, some of which I'll speak about this evening. Well, the early stages of that journey were, as I've said, somewhat faltering. By the early 30s, he was working on his invention with his wife, Marion Clayton Link, whom he married in 1931. And in the same year, he received a patent on his pilot maker. The Link trainer patent application describes a device moved by vacuum pumps, the very same pumps used in the Link piano and organ business. And this, of course, was only the first of a long series of patents that he'd received for continued innovations in flight simulation. And it's rather interesting today to note that the first flight simulator borrowed technology from the entertainment sector, a trend that I have to say continues today. (laughs) Following the the Army Air Corps' epiphany in 1934, the second customer for the link trainer was, somewhat ironically, the Japanese Imperial Navy in 1935. Uh, But this also, of course, pointed to the global market possibilities for simulation. But it was the Second World War, of course, that really made the difference. The need for pilots with instrument training meant that by the end of the war, Link had delivered over 6,000 blue box trainers to the Army and 1,000 to the Navy. And although the Army Air Force's aviation cadets flew many diverse types of trainer aircraft, virtually all of them underwent blind flying instruction in the Link. And Link trainers, of course, were also used by 35 foreign countries. Although a very modest man, Ed Link took enormous pride in a speech that Winston Churchill delivered to Parliament at the time of the Battle of Britain, in which he made clear the very significant role of Link trainers in winning that crucial battle. The blue box itself, uh, even in those days, had a single pilot cockpit and a basic generic instrument display, appropriate instrument navigation features, and it uh, had the glass desk and the instructor sat at the headphones, transmitting radio messages to the student in the cockpit. And in the cockpit, the student relied on his instruments to fly the link through various maneuvers. Slipstream simulators gave the controls the feeling of passing through the air, and a rough air generator added realism to the flight. Very much what I remember from the late 1960s. But... Since the development of that Link Simulator, computer technology has, of course, transformed simulation. But even so, some of the key features, such as the role of the instructor and the need for adequate immersion and realism, remain important factors to this day. So, the Link Trainer, to my mind, holds a significant place in aviation history. It was the first true flight simulator, and it provided safe training to hundreds of thousands of student pilots during the 1930s and 40s. And of course, without the crucial advance into simulation, the world would be quite different now. The air would probably be full of civil pilots learning to fly airliners. How dangerous would that be? With uh, all of the attendant cost and environmental penalties, our war fighters would be learning many of their combat skills the hard way in operations, as they did in the past. Edwin Link's legacy is immense. And in recognition of this, the Royal Aeronautical Society in 1947 awarded him its Wakefield Gold Medal for his contribution to safety in flying. And in April 1979, the Royal Aeronautical Society and the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics co-hosted a conference here in London marking the 50th anniversary of Link's patent application for his pilot trainer. Link himself was the guest of honor and the significance of the event was highlighted, I think, by the presidents of His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. And now, and now we're the better part of three decades on from that event. So, Where does simulation stand in these early years of the 21st century, particularly for us in defense? Well, of course, training remains a key driver, just as it did 80 years ago. Training is a critical element of military capability. It's crucial to the continuing operational success of our armed forces, as well as to the efficient conduct of the Ministry of Defense itself, and indeed to the many businesses that support defense. So I think it's worth spending just a bit of time describing some of the factors that today shape our training needs. Our priority is to support current operations, of course, but we also have to maintain our broader warfighting skills for future contingency operations, operations that already are and will increasingly be joint and multinational in nature. So, we require agile, adaptable, and rapidly deployable forces. And this generates a demanding individual training requirement, both for the military and for the civilians who support us. It begins with recruit training and follows through into progressive development thereafter. Tailored individual and collective pre-deployment training is essential. And this has to be updated regularly. But we also need to develop the enduring fundamentals, such as single-service ethos and fighting spirit. And this means effective lower-tier training in the maritime, land, and air environments. But the recent trend for more frequent and, in many cases, protracted operations, of course, puts a premium on the time available for training. So we'd like to be able, wherever possible, to push some training forward to theatre. I mean, this would help prevent skill fade amongst our deployed forces. It would allow the continuation of individual education and development, but, of course, in some cases, it would also prepare people rapidly to face emerging operational needs. Meanwhile, joint activities are increasingly extending to and pervading the lowest tactical level. And such operations are themselves often conducted in a multinational and interagency context. A growing proportion of our military capabilities, including command, control, communication and sensing, are being acquired to meet the needs of more than just one environmental or functional component of the joint force. And, as a consequence, interoperability requirements are themselves burgeoning to meet inter-service, inter-agency, and multinational demands. But as we develop capabilities with complex interdependencies and multiple users, we need to be able to train and rehearse collectively. Otherwise, our considerable investment in network-enabled capabilities will be, in large measure, wasted. At the same time, of course, the ever-pressing need to improve both operational effectiveness and resource efficiency is forcing us to consolidate our training wherever we possibly can. In summary, our training has to be responsive to rapidly changing operational requirements and opportunities, Integrated between the services, between the services and civilians, and between the defense community and the wider society that it serves, and cost-effective. Above all, though, we wish and need to train as we operate, both now and in the future. So, how is simulation supporting these needs? Why is it that our Commitment to the use of simulation has grown exponentially over the last decade, with most major equipment types now incorporating simulation in their training. Well, of course, many of the answers are obvious, but let me just reiterate a few of them. Risk. We can carry out our training, whether as an individual or as a team, in a safe environment. We can expose the trainee to situations and scenarios which they cannot safely experience elsewhere cost instead of operating expensive equipment and platforms we can for example reduce significantly our demand for fuel and our maintenance environment our capabilities not least our weapons and our sensors are becoming increasingly advanced requiring large areas in which to train effectively lack of such space pushes us to train in simulators. And of course, we must also take into account other pressures, such as the the need to reduce our impact on local populations and the wider global environment. Preparing for operations. Often, it's simply not possible to replicate the complexity and the dangers of operations in advance without the use of simulation. Now... These factors don't mean that we no longer need to train in the live environment. Many essential skills can and will only be developed on actual equipment and platforms in the real world. It's much more about achieving the right balance between training in the live and simulated environments and sometimes about mixing the two effectively. But simulation and live training are both here to stay. Let me turn to some examples of this in practice. And uh, they're in no particular order of importance, uh, and they're certainly not comprehensive. But I hope that they'll give you some idea of the the breadth and the scale of what we're doing in defense. And as this is, after all, the Royal Aeronautical Society, I think it's only appropriate if I start with air. After the link blue box... The technology was developed to provide visual inputs using small cameras flying over large-scale replicas of actual terrain. Many of you may remember the Phantom F4 simulator as an example. Of course, the rapid advances in computer-generated visuals made those old systems look remarkably clunky and inflexible. But they were a great step forward at the time, and I spent many hours myself with them in the Jaguar simulator. I well remember the pink stuffed pig that was put on one part of the model. It caused enormous shock to new pilots when they were suddenly confronted by something apparently ten times the size of King Kong just as they were starting on a target run. (laughs) Now, of course, today we have full-flight simulators which very accurately replicate the cockpit and with computer-generated visuals and motion systems that immerse the pilot in a remarkably high-fidelity environment. We also, though, have simpler part-task trainers that only replicate those aspects of the aircraft that are needed to train for a particular task. You might call this targeted fidelity. And all of our major platforms have equivalent training simulators these days. We use them, of course, for basic flying skills, but also increasingly for team training and for training in a joint or multinational context. RAF Benson, for example, houses the Medium Support Helicopter Aircrew Training Facility, which contains one Puma, two Merlin, and three Chinook simulators. They are networked together, which greatly enhances the scope and complexity of the training we can undertake. Aircrew regularly participate in a Thursday war with missions of about four hours, And the facility is also currently used to train crews deploying to Afghanistan and Iraq. Another recent development takes this very important concept an important step further. And that's mission training through distributed simulation, or MTDS. We have a concept capability demonstrator that builds on a number of years of research into linking flight simulators over a network a network that can, if we wish, include coalition partners. The demonstrator was commissioned in 2006 and is based at RAF Waddington, and its purpose is to evaluate the benefits of carrying out air component training through the linking of simulators so that pilots from various locations can come together in the same synthetic environment. And the trials have been an enormous success. They've clearly demonstrated the enormous potential of such collective training. Technology now offers us the prospect of routinely training with our United States counterparts over a transatlantic network, and of bringing together our own joint training assets to help develop critical areas, such as land-air integration. And we're also planning exercises specifically in support of mission preparation for current operations. I should say, though, that it's not all about pilots. We've also procured simulators for RAF Valley and Shawbury, for example, that provide immersive helicopter crew cooperation and rear crew training. Well, turning to the maritime environment, the Royal Navy has used land-based simulators for many years. In the early days, they too relied on mechanical simulators like the Blue Box, and often on the actual equipment itself. But computers and associated technology have transformed maritime simulators just as they have air. From shore-based replications of submarine reactor control rooms to ship operation room trainers to sonar trainers to simulation-supported gunnery trainers and to engineering trainers. The list is long and extensive. By way of example, at... Southwark Park, near Gosport, we have a Type 42, a Type 22, and a Type 23 command team training facility. And this provides a high-fidelity replica of the inside of each one of those ships' operations rooms where warfare teams can hone their skills in a realistically demanding but safe environment. And over the last few years, as with the air, we've built on this capability by networking it with other simulators through... Such networks, uh, uh, the Royal Navy now routinely trains with the United States Navy, with, with other U.S. joint forces, and with the German Navy, in much the same way as the RAF does with the U.S. Air Force. Again, this allows us to develop key operational and interoperability procedures without having to sail long distances to bring the forces together physically. Such networking has also allowed us to link... UK flight simulators, and our own permanent joint headquarters into the maritime trainers to provide the joint context. We're also investigating the potential of linking platforms to a wider training network, and this would allow crews to train while alongside in their ships. And with the option of linking to a wide selection of shore-based trainers, maritime, joint, and coalition, it would permit us... ...to represent the complexity of modern warfare in a way that's increasingly difficult to achieve at sea. Looking to the future, we are investing in what we call the Maritime Composite Training System. This is an incremental program to develop a coherent approach to future warfare operator training. It takes advantage of commercial, off-the-shelf technologies to provide much-needed flexibility classroom can be configured with radars to provide radar training. It can be configured to simulate a Type 23 frigate, or it can reproduce a Type 42 or Type 45 destroyer. Like the Southwick Park facility, which it will replace, it will also be connected to the wider UK and international training network. Meanwhile, the take-up of simulation in support of the land environment is now very significant pressures on training areas and the increasing complexity of our command control and sensor systems have been key drivers here but advances in technology have also made the transition a much more cost-effective proposition starting with basic warfare skills the dismounted close combat trainer is in crude terms a shooting gallery but it allows us to improve the quality of shooting dramatically, since ammunition is unlimited and scenarios can be much more varied than in a normal outdoor shooting range. The technology also allows us to instrument the weapons, providing valuable feedback to the trainees on their technique. I have to say, it even improves my shooting. As in the civilian sector, we anticipate doing much more driver training in simulators. But in terms of sheer complexity and scale, the combined arms tactical trainer or CAT facility is a very significant capability for us. Much more than a driver trainer, it's network it's a network suite of nearly 170 combat vehicles. It covers an area equivalent of three football pitches in which up to 700 troops and commanders can hone their battle skills prior to undertaking live training in the field. CAT is located in two purpose-built simulator halls, one in Warminster here in England and the other in Senilager in Germany. The CAT simulators faithfully replicate the interiors of UK armoured vehicles such as Challenger 2 main battle tanks, ...warrior infantry fighting vehicles and scimitar armoured reconnaissance vehicles. Soldiers can train against other soldiers in simulators... ...or they can engage computer-generated forces. And following an exercise, the entire battle can be replayed in a lecture hall... ...for post-exercise analysis and assessment. We're also, as I suggested earlier, investing still in simulation technology... ...derived from the games community... And this has attracted a great deal of media attention, of course. But more importantly, such commercial off-the-shelf technology is very user-friendly, enormously adaptable, and extremely cost-effective. And it's allowed us to produce and field in very quick order a training system to support current operations, in particular to improve our convoy driving skills. Convoys once tended to move in relative safety, air attack aside, behind the front line. Now, though, we need tactics, techniques and procedures for much more hostile environments. And it's hard to train for this in the UK. So just as Link drew his pumps from the entertainment industry, we're turning to the game sector for the tools we need to meet today's challenges. At the higher levels of command, we have... Commanded Staff Trainers, or CAST facilities. And in these, Brigade and Battle Group Headquarters staffs can both plan and execute simulated missions. We intend to link CAST with the Combined Arms Tactical Trainers and with other land training systems through a wider network. And this, in turn, will allow us to replicate and prepare for the increasingly complex environment in which we conduct land operations. We're also using extensive simulation to help improve our live training. Urban warfare is an increasingly important but hugely challenging skill for us. To help prepare our people in this important area, we've procured the Low-Level Urban Skills Trainer, or would you believe, the LUST system. Aren't our acronyms wonderful? In fact... It's fascinating. In fact, it instruments actual buildings to provide realistic weapon effect simulation and event capture. And this allows our troops to develop, practice, and learn the close combat techniques for entering, fighting through, and clearing individual rooms and buildings. On a much bigger scale, the tactical engagement simulation enables the army to conduct realistic live force-on-force training on Salisbury Plain and in Canada. The movements and the combat performance of individuals, vehicles and equipments are tracked and monitored and recorded to provide objective evidence to support after-action review and constructive debrief. Driven by urgent operational need, we've also procured improvised explosive device simulators. These provide, within a live environment, a safe but realistic simulation of the effects of the current threat, and they are invaluable in developing and teaching the tactics, techniques, and procedures to counter IEDs. Looking to the future, the Network-enabled training capability for land initiative will update and link our capabilities to provide efficient, flexible, and integrated land component collective training and mission rehearsal in a joint and multinational context. It will be achieved through a common infrastructure, routinely linking the full range of collective training environments, and able to support deployed training through a reach-back capability. Joint training has traditionally been carried out at the higher levels of command, and the permanent joint headquarters, of course, regularly uses simulation to support its training and exercises. But as I've mentioned... Joint training at the tactical level is growing in importance as we become increasingly network-enabled. Our land forces, for example, have much wider capabilities these days to communicate directly with aircraft. But this, in turn, increases the requirement for land-air training. And where we have interoperable technology, we can often replicate it in simulators. We're working to allow our land and air training systems to share each other's data. We're also making improvements to our joint tactical training infrastructure through the joint collective NEC training capability. And this is also funding common infrastructure and services, such as our UK training network and common terrain databases. Ultimately, it will provide the glue between the various multi-environment distributed systems that I've mentioned already. And it will thus help provide a defense-wide training capability which will help us make up for the shortfall we face in field training at divisional level and above. Well, I hope you can see from all of this that we've invested heavily in simulation technology over the last decade or so, and that it has been and will be of clear benefit to our people and capabilities. But we do, of course, have some challenges we've seen the clear advantages of networking our simulators. It's opened up training opportunities that are not only very difficult to replicate in a live environment, but are essential to prepare for the current and future types of network-enabled, dynamic and complex operations in which we expect to engage. But in the past, we procured training systems without taking account of this broader need. We now have to think in terms of systems of systems. And this should reflect the real world, where our fighting units interoperate and work together to deliver military capability in joint and combined environments. It's also still much more expensive than it should be to reconfigure our simulators and training systems to reflect current or indeed future operations, whether this be through new terrain databases or new 3D vehicles. And, of course, we'd like our training systems to reflect the platforms as faithfully as possible. But, again, this is often much too expensive an undertaking. Simulation network security is another challenge when training systems are running at different levels of security classification. And, of course, this is a particular problem in the international context. Finally, with our forces now deployed for extended periods of time... As I've said, we need training systems that can be deployed to theatre. Such capabilities could not only provide continuation training, uh, but also facilitate mission preparation, and with reach-back network support to the UK, it would also be much easier for us to share scenarios and lessons learned with those units that are about to deploy on Roulement. I want our forces to be able to reconfigure their training systems rapidly, to reflect changing operational situations, to improve our mission preparation today, and to prepare for the much more complex national and international interactions of the future. But if we are to do this, we have to face up to those challenges that I've described. Part of the solution lies in technology. We've certainly seen that advances outside the defense sector offer many opportunities which we can and must exploit. New approaches to interoperability and open standards, drawing on Internet technology, for example, could also help here. But the other part of the solution lies in organization and process. Building on a number of studies, the department is developing an MOD strategy for simulation. And this will emphasize our commitment to network all our significant simulation assets and to provide common simulation services such as terrain databases. It will also mandate interoperability in our future training systems. We've nominated a two-star senior responsible owner for simulation to drive these improvements across a very wide MOD stakeholder base. And the three principal training system project teams within our procurement process, have grouped to coordinate and drive coherence across all training systems. Now, so far this evening, I've focused on training, not least because that's where we see the most obvious and indeed the greatest scope for simulation. But simulation is an increasingly useful tool in acquisition, too. It allows us to work with industry at the very early stages of a project, and then through life, to predict performance. It allows us to test interoperability, and it allows us to evaluate human factor and training needs well before we need to start to commit significant resources or to cut metal. Ideally, all the assumptions that we make through life and that we demonstrate and test in our simulation would flow through to our training systems. Well, that aspiration presents a number of technical and organizational challenges, but we're working hard with industry to meet them. And I want to stress the importance we place on working with industry, and indeed with allies, to develop and improve our existing simulation capabilities. Only through cooperation and collaboration can we improve interoperability and cost-effectiveness. Whether this be through the development and application of international open standards or through the exploitation of commercial off-the-shelf technology, we need to work in partnership. I think within the UK we have a tradition of collaborative simulation research activity between MOD and industry, and we plan to continue this. The Nightworks initiative has, to my mind, shown the value of MOD and industry working together ...to solve military capability problems through simulation. So, we've come a long way from the blue box. Networking and the exploitation of information technology in particular... ...have taken us into wholly new territory. But what of the future? Well, crystal ball gazing is good fun... ...but um, predicting the turn of events and the direction of technology is notoriously difficult but allow me to indulge myself just for a moment. If I had to guess, I might suggest that one possible development is the blurring or perhaps the increased blurring of the boundary between what we think of as simulation and reality. After all, the crew of a submarine, when it's submerged at least, is in many ways already operating in a virtual environment. And if you combine this with the trend to uninhabited vehicles then I think some intriguing possibilities present themselves. Let's imagine for a moment a possible future scenario. A commander sits above a battle space with with a god's eye view. He's not actually there. He's in a synthetic environment, fused from the inputs of multiple and diverse sensors. By a gesture or or a word, he can suddenly expand any part of the scene. Again, by word or gesture, he can designate targets, which are automatically engaged, perhaps by unmanned combat vehicles, which are cycling through the area, perhaps by ground-based fires, or perhaps by standoff air launch weapons. He sees the results in real time and reacts accordingly. The outcome is presented also in real time to another commander who is mounting a synchronized surface attack. Software automatically adjusts objectives to achieve the optimum outcome in the changing circumstances. Science fiction? No. Merely an extrapolation, on a grand scale, yes, of capabilities that we can see emerging now. Which is not to say that such a scenario is within easy or quick reach. But if we want to shape the future successfully... We need to have some idea of the kinds of places to which it leads us. And the scenario that I've described has at its heart the networking of sensors, decision-makers, and weapon systems, the networking of decisions with other command elements and processes, the networking of weapon systems to provide the right effects. And it fuses synthetic and real-world environments in a way that makes it increasingly difficult to distinguish between the two. And one of the byproducts of that would be it would make it increasingly difficult to distinguish between training carried out in simulation and the real thing. Speculation, of course, but not impossible. And it all springs from a man who wanted to fly. A man who refused to be deterred by the difficulties that he faced. A man who found a new way uh, of seeing and asserting the coherence of his bit of the world. A man called Edwin Link. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Jock has very kindly uh, uh, allowed us time to ask some questions and answers from his uh, very exciting and stimulating address. So could I ask for the first question, please? Good evening. Uh, My name is Gil, not associated with uh,
2: any particular party. Thank you very much for a very interesting uh, lecture, and I apologize for not knowing the full uh, autobiography of uh, Edwin Link. But could you just probably say, when he did have enough money, did he ever fulfill his uh, wish to fly?
1: <laughs> Most certainly, yes. Uh, but I'm not the expert on Edwin Link, but we do have uh, one or two experts in the audience um, who would be glad to share some uh, some history with you, I-, I suspect, in the reception afterwards.
0: Is there another question, please? Uh, Roger McMillan from Boeing Aircraft. Um, with this vision that you just explained at the, at the end of your... Uh, your presentation, which was very good. Uh, what pitfalls do you see of putting potentially that kind of power in the hands of one person with the God's eye view?
1: Well, we already have the President of the United States. Right? <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, I mean, that... that that, of course, is an important question. It's, it's a question that we have had to face in terms of, uh, of, of control of um, nuclear weapons, for example. Um, we were going to one or two slightly embarrassing incidents on the other side of the Atlantic just recently uh, with regard to that. But, but, but we managed to set up procedures and processes that, uh, that, that address those issues, and we would need to do the same again. There's no question about that. But I think that um, it's all a matter of, uh, of, of context. Um, the kind of power um, and destructive ability that is encapsulated in a single platform these days compared to what uh, uh, you would have thought of um, 150 years ago is, of course, uh, of, a, of an unthinkable scale. Um, but we seem to manage it. Um, so I think that uh, you're right to identify the issue, but I think that it's one that as we evolve the technologies and the processes... Um, the controls will come along with it.
0: Next question, please.
1: Oh,
2: Dave White, Telus Training Simulation. You touched on a rather thorny subject of multi-level security and networking across borders. I've obviously, I've been involved in previous exercises where we've had to declassify disks in order to do this. Um, I wonder how you see the future going in that area.
1: Well, I think the answer, um, has to, I don't know what the answer, what shape the answer Uh, Takes, but I think it has to be um, a technological answer. Um, Answers that depend upon processes, which is what we essentially have at the moment, are just far too unwieldy and too inflexible. Uh, And they will, um, to be perfectly frank, they will just undermine the very purpose we're seeking to achieve in in this networking. So there has to be some kind of technical solution. Now, I'm not um, an expert in uh, in any kind of information technology, let alone the security applications of it, but... um, it seems to me that uh, we already see the application of security technologies in the commercial sector, which ought to have some application here, I would have thought, Um, and that has to be the answer.
3: Ian Straughan, Flight Simulation Group of the Society. Uh, Sir, I used to run the flight simulation office in your main building rather a long time ago, and in those days, um, uh, lots of people were rather against it because... They wanted uh, airmen to fly aircraft and sailors to sail ships and army guys to drive tanks on ranges and so forth. And I'm so glad to see the sea-, the sea change, if I can put it that way, that has obviously happened in the senior echelons. However, young people join the services to do exactly that, to fly aircraft, sail ships and so forth. Now, all right, they're brought up in cyberspace now. How do you see that sort of compromise between operating the real vehicle? and operating in cyberspace, motivating our young people in the future?
1: Well, uh, first of all, in terms of, uh, of just simulating the environment in an actual manned aircraft, they will, st- as I said, the, the, the requirement for live training will, will remain. Um, but I think that there, there is an interesting question here as you move into unmanned vehicles, and what, which are not necessarily unpiloted, by the way, they're just not in, pilot isn't in the vehicle. What does this mean? Um, I mean, interestingly, we haven't had any real difficulty in getting people uh, to fly predators. Um, we already have quite a lot of them doing that, as uh, as many of you will know. Um, equally, uh, it may well be that for some systems, which are operated wholly in a cyber environment, if I can put it that way, you're looking for somewhat different skills than you were when you were looking for pilots to fly aircraft through the air. Um, and I would venture to suggest that in our modern society... You will find no shortage of uh, talented young people able to do that and interested in doing it. So I, I don't think we should um, uh, we should be hidebound by by old conventions and old ways of doing things. But having said all that, I'm, I would just re-emphasise that in terms of people having to operate platforms in the actual environments, there is no substitute for experience of doing it in the real environment. It's just that um, you can make much better use of that experience if you're properly prepared. Through uh, simulation in a synthetic environment, and of course, as I pointed out, there are a number of things. No matter how many hours you fly in a month, you just cannot do um, outside of a combat environment, other than in a synthetic one.
2: Good evening, Nick Taylor, Transport Canada. Um, you you do appear to place a great emphasis on your networking uh, abilities of your of your simulation devices, and and you mentioned. Uh, uh, a joint uh, simulation exercise involving up to 700 uh, personnel at one time. Um, could you give us an idea of the of the magnitude of the of, of your future projects that you envision that that are cross border and, uh, and 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 cross ocean uh, um, uh, operations?
1: Well, I think there's. Uh, I mean, you could say that there's uh, literally no limit to what might be achieved. In practical terms, of course, there is. Um, uh, you can you can add in computer generated forces of course which greatly multiply the the density and complexity of the scenario in which you are operating uh in terms of of linking um people from widely different environments uh the other than security issues which we've talked about the key um the the, the key restriction at the moment of course is the availability of sufficient bandwidth secure bandwidth um uh, so i think that as far as i can foresee will be the limiting factor um but other than that, um, and other than the sheer availability of people to do it, uh, I don't think that we see any limit to this at all. Um, we're not going to leap immediately to a situation where everyone is linked and doing everything together collectively. It's going to grow gradually over time. But as we link more and more of these things together, I think um, inevitably, as has happened um, in other networked environments such as the Internet, people will find uh, interesting uh, and innovative ways of exploiting the opportunities that opened up by that technology. So I see it as a as a fairly boundless prospect. Any other questions, please?
2: Yes. So, Michael Ado- Donoghue, Aviation Training International. Um, the scenario painted at the end will obviously need quite a lot of training for all the people involved, and they'll get that from the simulation itself. One of the things that one notices with complex weapon systems and the training for them is in fact the development of situational awareness. Do you see any specific targeting of situational awareness training through simulation um, as a priority um, aside from the actual main simulations themselves?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very important um, area. If I take, for example, just rather guarded in, in what I say, but let me take the, um, the brigade operations room at Basra, uh, in, in in south of iraq i mean critical in that operations room is for, is is the, their maintenance of situational awareness they are in a virtual environment um they're in a big room with a lot of screens um but the object of the exercise is for them to develop sufficient granularity of situational awareness that so they can actually um execute the commander's command and control functions effectively uh and in an agile fashion um now in in a way, that situational awareness is provided for them by the technology, but, of course, the technology doesn't do it all. Um, it, the the processes within the room that they go through, the, the uses to which the information is put and so on. And if you think about it, if they're sitting there in a dark room with just a lot of stuff coming over screens, then to train them, you don't actually have to have anything happening at the other end. I mean, as long as the appear, information is appearing on the screens, that's good enough. Um, you know, they never actually see what's ha- what, what the real result is. So you can use that environment, which is the real environment in which they're operating, as a very effective training tool. Clearly, you need to be able to generate the necessary inputs to the screen, um, but that's simply a, a, a mechanistic problem, to be quite honest. So, yes, um, you know, the development of situational awareness is one of, the key, um, is one of the key things we're trying to achieve through our use of uh, simulation in synthetic environments. So a question at the back there.
0: Peter Cook does. Um, is there one area that you don't have simulators at the moment that you, in the next
1: sort of ten years you'd see a real need for? Ah, good question. Um, a- actually, I don't have an answer for you, but it is a very good question, I'll go away and think about it. <laughs> <laughs> or, let me put it another way, I'll get someone to think about it for me. <laughs> but thank you for, thank you for the thought. If I think people are getting rather thirsty.
0: <laughs> but perhaps if I could just throw in one last question just on my own behalf, uh, Sir Jock, and that is, do you think we're doing enough uh, when we uh, go to contract for the major platform to make sure that the requirements for the simulation and the training is covered by those major platform providers?
1: No, no, we're, we're, we're not. I mean, one of the problems, of course, which all of the industry... Well, I think, I think everyone in the room here will recognise, is that... Um, uh... you uh... you have an aspiration for a particular capability which translates into platform and um, and, and and weapons and so on um, and the project progresses and suddenly winds up seeming to cost you know fifty times what you first estimated it would and you have to figure out how to make this affordable uh... and almost inevitably one of the first things to be trimmed uh, are, are those bits of uh, you know that you just described not because people don't think they're important but it's uh, you do what you have to to survive basically um, so, uh, so no, we're not doing enough. The answer to that is not recognizing the need for it. We do recognize the need for it. The, the answer to that, actually, is to get our, um, our, our cost estimation much, much better um, and to get proper controls on those so that we can wind up actually being able to plan and then afford what we need to, to deliver the capability in the long term. I have to say, I mean, we do deliver the, the, the training, but because it comes along later, it is inevitably... Um, uh, less effective because uh, it's not uh, up to the same standards and it winds up actually being more expensive in the long run. This is a situation I know we, we, we all recognize. I do think that um, we have got better. Um, we have got better at it. Uh, but we still got a long way to go. Thank you. I think
2: we can take one more question. CDS, no, I won't allude to uh, <laughs> those days uh, in the 60s. Uh, Peter Norris, uh, uh, past president of the Society. Uh, and it's picking up on your answer to that last question, really, um, uh, that r- you touched on uh, the whole question of the use of simulation in the acquisition process and so on. Um, and um, your comments led me to think that um, the work, and, it, and, and from my experience as well it appears to be, that, that the work there is more related to the equipment and the way it interoperates with legacy systems and so on and so forth, rather than perhaps with the other lines of development uh, that contribute to that capability. In other words, the people component, the doctrine piece, uh, the training piece, and so on. And that there are a number of examples of equipments that have been uh, brought into service or where the problems were discovered during the development phase because those aspects uh, were not properly looked at that led to some of those cost increases and so on. So that comes down to the point that... uh, I'd ask you to sort of agree with in a way as to whether, in fact, what is really needed here in the acquisition piece is a much more comprehensive approach to the modelling and simulation of the whole of the defence acquisition bit, not wishing to extend the period, but to make it more comprehensive.
1: No, I I absolutely agree. I mean, I I would only say that I think we have have moved uh, a little bit further on um, than just dealing with the the equipment itself. Uh, I mean, we do have people involved at a very early stage in the development projects of, uh, of major platforms who look um, not just at, you know, does this feel right, is this in the right place, is this articulated properly, but actually given the capabilities that are supposedly going to be delivered by the platform and the, the system and are, are, are uh, worked into the simulation, does this actually change the way we should be doing things? Um, so, th- so that's starting to happen. Uh, But I agree with you, it's much uh, less well-developed than the equipment side, and we need to continue the progress.
0: Thank you, everyone. I think it's about time we let uh, Sir Jock uh, uh, go, and uh, as he's intimated, no doubt, uh, um, perhaps he can stay a bit longer with us at the reception upstairs. So, in conclusion, please would you join me in thanking once again Sir Jock for his uh, stimulating and exciting address, and could I, on behalf of the Society, Sir Jock,
1: uh, please present your guest yeah. will then too. Thank you very much indeed. That's very kind. Thank you. Thank you.